I don't claim to be an expert at handpicking the best songs from a span of movies, and maybe I don't back up my hard drive as much as I should. I mean, after all, I'm just a schnook. But, greetings. Thank you for tuning in to Autobiography of a Schnook, and I am a schnook, I'm Sean. Notice how people say, and, to start off a sentence, which I... I don't know if that's technically correct to do. I, re- I really don't. I was always kind of fuzzy about that particular grammar rule, so uh, I figured let's try another conjunction, but. But anyway, hey, welcome to Chapter 40. First of all, I just need to get this off my chest. Man, do I suck at singing. Good lord. I was listening back to the previous episode, Chapter 39, was it? And I listened to that version of nine times blue that I was doing. I went through many, many takes of that, and I listened back and I said, okay, this is good enough to use. Well, first of all, I accidentally chopped off the second half of it, which is why I kind of faded it out after my second verse that I wrote. I figured, okay, at least I have that, and I didn't have enough time to re-record. But it sounded fine then. But then when I'm listening to it after the episode is out, I'm just hearing how terrible my voice sounded. And I'm thinking, geez, if you people heard every one of my episodes before, you've heard me sing before, and I feel terrible for you. I am so sorry. So, I really am making some serious steps into finding a voice coach so I could learn how to sing properly. Because it's really hard to be musical and not like the sound of your own voice. It's pretty terrible. So, I'm going to see if I can get some help in that regard. I got a couple of names recommended from a good friend who has an amazing voice. I figured I'd ask somebody who can sing well for some advice as to whom to talk to about getting a voice teacher. So, yeah. Oh, and speaking of that segment, the music segment last time, something I did not know until just recently. In fact, a lot of people didn't know, but it's in Andrew Sandoval's recently updated book about the monkeys that he did. Now, this thing is freaking massive, and uh, my wife, as much of a fan as she is, and believe me, she loves the monkeys, she hates the book simply because it is so big and awkward. She said, you can't curl up with this. But the thing is, the information and the pictures in it, absolutely dynamite, really. And if there's one thing that I learned from this new Andrew Sandoval book, it's that Davy Jones smoked. A lot, because there are a lot of pictures in that thing of him uh, with a cigarette. A lot. Interestingly, you don't see, at least I didn't, when I was going through it, I didn't see any uh, pictures of any of the other guys in the group with a cigarette. (laughs) And I know Michael Nesmith, right up to the end, smoked, but uh, a different kind of substance from uh, the usual thing. Something that's legal where he lived and legal where I live. I'll just put it that way. But, okay, he smoked pot there. You happy? He smoked pot. (laughs) Regularly. (laughs) But there's one piece of information I didn't get to yet, but somebody else pointed out. The song Mommy and Daddy, which if you haven't heard it, that is one of the most freakish monkeys songs ever. It was written by Mickey Dolenz. And it's really disturbing, actually, especially the original set of lyrics that they wouldn't let him put on the album. And uh, that version's going around, too. That one's been released a couple of times. He's basically talking about, oh, what if I were the one who was shot and my blood was spilling all over the kitchen floor? (laughs) It's like, but that was recorded in 1968 during the sessions for the album The Birds, the Bees and the Monkeys, which is the last album they did when the TV show was still on the air. That is, before they started rerunning it. But that song was left off it, and it was put on the album The Monkees Present, which was the second album that the group released after Peter Twerk left. It was just Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, and Davy Jones. In the previous episode, I had talked about how technically The Monkees Present was the first album that did not include Peter Tork. Most people would probably think it's Instant Replay, because he had already left the band by the time Instant Replay was recorded. But of course, I had mentioned before that 
Peter actually played on one of the songs on Instant Replay. I think it's uh, I Won't Be the Same Without Her, because that song was recorded in 1966, and he actually played on that session. Well, of course, now I found out that on Mommy and Daddy, Peter Tork played bass, which means that technically Peter is on The Monkees Present as well, which means the only studio album in the entire Monkees catalog that does not have Peter Tork on it changes the one that Mickey and Davey did after Mike Nesmith left the group. And I just want to let this out. I'm sorry I'm kind of going off on this, but when I was first a fan in the late 80s, the mid to late 80s, I avoided changes. I never bought that when I saw it in the store because I'm thinking, it just seems wrong that there are only two of them now and they're calling themselves the monkeys. Do I really want just Mickey and Davey? The funny thing about the Changes album is, well, one of the funny things I guess I should say is that on the cover, you only have Mickey and Davey. And of course, a lot of people point out how they're kind of facing away from each other. So it's like, ooh, they're not in the best state right now. They're, they don't like each other. That picture was taken from a TV show that Mickey, Davey, and Mike were recently on. I don't remember if it was the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour or Johnny Cash or some other show. But the funny thing is, you can actually see the shadow from Mike's guitar in that picture. <laughs> it's right over, uh, I think it's Davey's head, it's right, the shadow is right over his head. I think it's Davey. So it's it's just crazy. And now I did eventually get a cassette version of Changes when I saw it at a flea market. I think it was the flea market they have in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. There are a bunch of monkeys albums I never got. Somebody was selling them on tape. The uh, 86, 87 Rhino pressings, that is. And Changes was one of them. And I listened to it and um, it wasn't really bad. In fact, to this day, I maintain that the Monkees Changes album is not a bad album in and of itself. As a Monkees album, however, it's terrible. I don't remember if it was Mickey or Davey. I think it was Davey because he didn't really like recording that album. Mickey, he was just happy that he had something to record. But I think it was Davey who said that they were basically recording an Andy Kim album, <laughs> which is pretty much what it was, especially because he wrote at least one song on that, and it was produced by Jeff Barry. So, yeah, anyway, I'm I'm sorry to go off on that. There's one other music thing I want to touch on. Um, I heard from Jim Fullerton over the Twitter, kind of in response to my assertion that there's no such album as Led Zeppelin IV. He informed me, and demonstrated actually, that he asked Alexa to play Led Zeppelin IV. And Alexa, sure enough, started playing the fourth Led Zeppelin album. And he said it even worked if he said Zoso. Or Zofo, which means, of course, somebody needs to submit a bug report to Amazon because there's no such album as Led Zeppelin IV. Their fourth album is simply their second untitled album. So I had an idea. I asked Siri to play Led Zeppelin's second untitled album. So let's see what happens if I do that now. Hey Siri, please play Led Zeppelin's second untitled album. Here's Untitled by Birds. Yeah, see what happened? It's playing. It's playing the Birds' album called Untitled. So I said to Jim, we should also see how these things react to requests for playing the non-existent album Chicago 2. There's no such album as Chicago 2. So let's see what happens with Siri. Hey Siri, please play Chicago 2. Now playing Chicago. Oh my god, yeah, it's doing the same thing that uh, Alexa did. It's playing Chicago's self-titled album, which is not Chicago 2, it's just called Chicago, period. Well, it's their second self-titled album. Their first self-titled album was Chicago Transit Authority, which was the name they used before the actual travel agency reached out to them and said, yeah, if you're going to keep using that, uh, we're probably going to fight you uh, in court about it. So they had to change their name. They called themselves Chicago. Oh, there's something I have to say about that, but I'm going to save that for another time. Because right now, I just want to get on with things. Now, this is going to be an unusual episode in terms of how I usually record. There's no script for this episode. I'm going right off the top of my head. 
mainly because the first thing I want to talk about isn't really a story of my life, but some observations and especially some tips for you. Some pleas, if you will. And the music part of this episode, I'm just going to speak from the heart. That's all. And uh, I'm not going to do a wacky transition in the first segment with the transitional music that I like to drop in. I'm just going to go straight into it. Now, I just want to assure you that there was nothing that happened to me, either now or recently or whatever, that's prompting me to say this. It's more my own observation. And I've seen it happen time and time and time again to so many people. Now, I'm thinking primarily in terms of computers, but this can also apply really to anything, whether it's computers, whether it's paper or whatever. But how many times, and I think I mentioned this when I talked about the job that I had working tech support at Sharp Electronics, how many times have we known somebody who had a hard drive go belly up and all their important stuff was on it and they didn't have a backup? My friends, I implore you, if you have a computer that has a lot of stuff on it, that if your hard drive died right now, it would be a devastating loss because you would have no way to access that data, those pictures, that music, those important documents that you need for a lawyer or for whatever else have you. Do yourself a favor. Get yourself an external hard drive that is compatible with your computer, that has twice the storage of the hard drive in your computer. Well, that is hard drive or solid state drive, whatever it is that keeps all your stuff on your computer. If you don't know how big your hard drive is and that you should know, you absolutely should know. And I'm, I'm not going to tutor you on how to do that. That's what Google is for. Get yourself an external hard drive that has twice that space. Connect it to your computer. Stop listening to this podcast right now and go back up that computer and do it before you continue listening to this podcast, okay? Please. Because if your hard drive does go belly up and you need to replace it, if you have that backup, once you get the replacement drive, guess what? You can restore that backup. Basically, the idea is to make sure that if there's anything that you absolutely always want to have, no matter what then have at least two instances of those. The same goes for pictures on your cell phone. If you take pictures on your phone, I mean, who doesn't? Get those pictures and transfer them to a computer or at the very least to some kind of a cloud drive. And again, I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to do that or else it would take forever because first I'd have to consider, uh, are you a Mac user? Are you a Windows user? Are you a Linux user? Well, then again, if you use Linux, chances are you already do this crap anyway. <laughs> but I back up pretty regularly. At the very least, I back up my laptop before I go on a trip. I have an external hard drive that I connect and I do a backup on that. My desktop computer, which is an iMac, I have it set so that it's always doing incremental backups. Every hour, I think it does an incremental backup, so it's just a little bit over time. Or at the very least, if you're not going to do a full backup, at least take the files that you have that you absolutely don't want to use and copy those files somewhere else, like to an external thumb drive or to, I don't know, your Google Cloud account, your Google Documents account or something, or your Dropbox. Just do not leave yourself with just one copy. Do you have a bunch of photo albums that if you suddenly, God forbid, had a big fire and it wiped out all the photo albums, you'd be devastated because those are the only pictures you have? Scan them. Make digital copies of them, okay? If you don't have a scanner, they're really cheap. At least relatively cheap, I should say. If your music is downloaded from the internet like say HD tracks or QO buzz or iTunes or Apple music, whatever, make copies of that music. I mean, I know that the receipts are all there. Each of those online stores knows that you already purchased them. So you should be able to re-download them. But the fact is you never know if those songs might suddenly be taken off of those services. So make yourself copies of those. That goes back to doing a backup. There's no reason not to have some kind of a backup, especially because hard drives only get cheaper. I remember, 
When I first started using a hard drive, say 1993, it was considered a bargain if you paid between a dollar and a dollar and five cents per megabyte. Just to give you an idea, if you're not that computer literate, the basic unit of storage on a computer is a byte. Basically, a byte is the equivalent of one character, like a letter or a number or a symbol. A thousand of those characters, numbers, symbols, a thousand of those bytes is a kilobyte. So it basically goes by metrics. A thousand kilobytes is a megabyte. And a megabyte is how much a floppy disk, a three and a half inch floppy disk, typically used to be able to store, assuming just single-sided. Once you got it formatted and everything, it was less because the formatting took up some space. IBM compatibles, which we now call Windows or Wintel, <laughs> those floppy disks, along with Atari ST floppy disks, would hold 720 kilobytes. So not quite a full megabyte, but there. The old school Macintoshes, they would format disks to 800 kilobytes. Amiga would be 880 kilobytes. So basically, a megabyte is a floppy disk. Again, it was considered a bargain in 1993 if you could get a hard drive for up to a dollar and a nickel per megabyte. A thousand megabytes is a gigabyte. It was a huge deal when gigabyte drives came out. Just to give you an idea what a gigabyte is, well, a gigabyte is about 1.25 music CDs worth. That's, that is assuming that the music CD is jam-packed every single usable second. I think nowadays the smallest drive you can get is 128 gigabytes. You can get little SD cards that store 128 gigabytes. So basically a gigabyte is a billion bytes. Nowadays it's pretty typical to uh, have a hard drive that has a terabyte or more of storage, a terabyte being a trillion bytes. And you can get a terabyte hard drive for like 86 bucks. Keep in mind that that dollar to dollar five I was talking about before per megabyte, that was 1993 money. Now I'm saying you can get a terabyte drive for 86 bucks. That is 2022 money. Probably even cheaper if you do the proper shopping. In fact, 20 years ago, when I worked at that PR firm that I talked about where I quit my job, we had an outsourced IT guy who pleaded with my boss to get more hard drive space. He said, hard drives are cheap and they're only getting cheaper. And he was right. He was right. Now, of course, if you think about the logic here, why was I telling you to back up your stuff? Well, because hard drives and solid state drives have a limited shelf life. They will die at some point. Hard drives, especially because they have moving parts. Solid state drives do not have movable parts, but they still have a limited number of times they can read and write to the same part. So you want to have something to back that stuff up for when that drive does go belly up. Having said that, is it possible for your backup drive to go belly up? Oh, hell yes, it is. No, I'm not saying get another drive to back that drive up and all that. Hopefully, when you do need to restore that backup, your backup drive will be alive and kicking. It's probably not going to have the same wear and tear that your normal drive does. So it's not like it's going to die sooner unless there's a very bad defect in it. But yeah, just to give you an idea of what I do, for my laptop, I have a terabyte drive in my laptop, and I periodically run a backup onto a two terabyte external hard drive. Now, the reason I say get double the size of your main hard drive is because, well, the backup program that you use might actually keep multiple versions of the backup. So let's say that uh, you backed up your hard drive on May 13th, 2021, and you backed it up again on September 18th, 2021. There's a file that you deleted, say, on June 4th. And today you realize, oh crap, I deleted that file a long time ago. Well, because you have multiple backups on that drive, you can actually go back to that May backup and pull up that file that you accidentally deleted. You can't do that with your September backup. But basically, just please, for the love of God, make sure for your own sanity that you have multiple occurrences of anything that's near and dear to you that if it were destroyed, it would really hurt. Pictures, music, 
computer data, documents. Now, of course, I'm not saying, well, everything you own, because how many of us are going to go out and get, um, say, an additional car in case this one... Well, okay, I take it back. When my dad died, my mom kept his car because she figured if my car is on the fritz, I can use his car. So, (laughs) but I'm saying within reason, if it's like a document, if it's a picture, if it's a piece of sound, back up your phone too. If you have a smartphone, you do have a way to back it up. Basically, if there's something electronic, back it up. This is something I would tell customers at Sharp Electronics. Back everything up that's electronic, because anything that uses electricity can just freak out and wipe everything out. It's possible. Electricity isn't always steady. In fact, I want to argue it's never steady. But just do yourself a favor, and don't let tragedy happen to your your precious data. And I'm going to go further, and I'm going to say this. You might be wondering, well, how about if I do a cloud backup? Well, that's still a backup. I subscribe to a cloud backup service. In fact, the reason I do is because somebody was doing a sale for something like 10 bucks. You get lifetime service as opposed to our usual, what, what was it, $30 a year or something. And I'm glad I did. But here's the thing. I do not rely on the cloud. I don't rely on cloud storage to be my number one go-to thing. And I'll tell you why. A lot of people don't quite understand what the cloud is, and they'll say, what exactly is the cloud? And somebody wiser than me came up with this perfect answer to the question. The cloud is basically someone else's computer. I think that's freaking brilliant, because that's exactly what it is. Someone else's computer. Like, you rely on, say, Pandora to provide you with your music? Basically, Pandora is running on somebody else's computer somewhere else. And you better hope that that computer is up and running if you want to listen to your music. Not only that, but you also better hope that your internet connection is running to listen to that music. So basically, cloud storage requires at least two things. It requires, number one, that someone else's computer is online. And number two, that you have a way to connect to that someone else's computer. That is, an internet connection. I know of people who got rid of their DVDs and their CDs because if they want to hear music or watch a movie, they can stream it now. Well, good luck streaming that 70s show. (laughs) Well, at least last I checked, that 70s show isn't streaming anywhere. And when I plead my case to these people as to why you shouldn't rely on the cloud for streaming, for music, for videos, why would you want to have to boot some kind of computer to be able to access that stuff? And people would just laugh at me. Let me tell you what happened about a year ago. Somebody was doing some kind of construction work in one of the alleys in my neighborhood, and um, somebody fouled up and knocked over a pole that caused a chain reaction of various cables to become undone, which meant that Comcast service was out. RCN service. Yeah, I live somewhere where you actually have a choice of cable providers. RCN service was out. AT&T's phone service was out. The only thing left was cellular service. So you know what I did? I sat back and laughed at people who rely on streaming. Because you know what I could do? I could still listen to my music because I did not need an internet connection. And speaking of streaming, there's a little thing that could happen on the internet simply because of various countless issues that I won't get into right now. We've all seen it. Buffering. You'll watch a movie and suddenly it'll hiccup or it'll freeze for a moment or two. If you're listening to music over a streaming service, first of all, you're not getting it in the best sound quality possible, I can tell you that. Second of all, not only will it hiccup, but also when it's trying to recover, it'll sound kind of bad, kind of tinny, kind of like digital, it'll sound robotic, I guess. That's a good way to say it. Is that really a good way to listen to music? No. Now, having said that, I've talked a lot on this podcast about how much I love listening to records, which I do. I love listening to records. But here's the thing. I also have CDs. I don't actually listen to the compact discs all that much 
Usually when a compact disc enters my home, it has a date with the computer. I rip the audio to my desktop in a lossless audio format like FLAC or Apple Lossless, and then I copy that file over to my laptop and compress it down to an MP3 file, which I will then put on my iPod and my phone. And yes, I said MP3, and MP3 is a lossy format. When you make an MP3 file, there is some sound actually sacrificed. But here's the thing. I only have so much space to work with on my phone and on my iPod, especially my phone, because I have a lot of pictures, I have a lot of videos, I have a lot of apps. And that's exactly why I still use an iPod, because an iPod is a dedicated music player. I have a hacked iPod in which the hard drive that Apple shipped it with was taken out and replaced by 384 gigabytes worth of SD cards. There are a couple of advantages to that. First of all, SD cards use up less electricity than the hard drives did, so that means the battery doesn't run out as quickly. Second, the SD cards are faster. And the cool thing about this is if the SD cards die out, I can pop open the iPod, replace them. It's a lot harder to replace an iPod hard drive because they're such a specialized format. In fact, the reason Apple discontinued their original ClickWheel iPod format and uh, just stuck with the iPod Touch, which I don't even know if it still exists, given that the iPhone is out and the iPod Touch is basically uh, the iPhone without a phone. But the reason they discontinued those old-style iPods is that the hard drives are no longer made. They couldn't get the hard drives anymore. And they figured, rather than try to find another way to put music in those things, they just discontinued that classic format. But I have an iPod with uh, 384 gigs of storage, and I have a, another one with 256 as a backup. So I'm all set. If I want to listen to music, I don't have to boot a computer. Usually when I'm listening to music, I'm listening to it off my computer while I work. If it's not off my computer, it'll be off my iPod. Or if I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the living room, I'll put a record on because I love listening to records. And you know, the cool thing about keeping CDs, by the way, or one of the cool things about keeping CDs, all these CDs that we have that are now ripped and whose music I have on my desktop computer in lossless format, my laptop computer in a lossy format, and my iPod and phone in a lossy format. You know what'll happen if my hard drive on my desktop computer goes belly up? Well, the CDs themselves are their own backups. I could just go back to the CDs and re-rip them. So there you go. And in fact, I actually have the hard drive that has all the CDs ripped on a constant backup too, so I could do I could restore that backup drive as well. And I know that people want to get rid of CDs because they take up room. Sure. Then what I suggest doing is buy the CDs, go right ahead and buy them, but rip them and put them in storage or put them under the bed or something. So that way they're out of your hair. You have more space available to you. But uh, to be truthful, lately when I'm buying music, I think twice. I think, number one, is this something that I want on CD? Because here's the thing. If it's music that I like so much that it's worth taking up room in my house, I will buy the CD. Thing is, my CD towers are getting pretty full, and I don't want to have to buy another CD tower and find a place for it. So there has been a lot of stuff that I bought lately that I bought as downloads, and I made sure that they were high-resolution, lossless downloads. And people might say, well, Sean, you use an iPod, really? Huh. Well, you can't use wireless headphones with those, can you? Uh, yeah, you can. I have a Bluetooth dongle that I bought for my iPod, and it works really well with my wireless headphones. I was recently listening to another podcast, and the host wondered aloud, wait a minute, do people even use iPods anymore? <laughs> I took a picture of my iPod playing back that actual episode as I was listening to it. I took a picture of it, sent it to him, said, uh, what were you saying again? So, yeah, people use, or at least this person does. My wife does. Lisa has her own iPod. And here's something else. I'm a Mac user. Now, you probably hear from a lot of Mac people that they hate iTunes. I don't. I don't. People think it's all cluttered. I think it's perfectly fine. It does everything I need it to do. It handles podcasts. It copies music to and from my iPod and my phone. And it does the job fine. I tried 
the standalone music and podcast apps that are now actually part of the Mac operating system. And I got to tell you, I hate them. I hate those standalone apps. The podcasts app sucks. It does a terrible job of maintaining and updating podcasts. And the music app picks and chooses when to recognize my iPod or my phone. And that's true for both my desktop and my laptop. Now, I have the latest version of the Mac OS, which as of right now is Monterey. And uh, any Apple diehards listening right now are probably saying, wait a minute, you can't use iTunes on that. It won't let you. Well, there is a program called, I think it's called Retroactive. Now, Retroactive, you install that and it will let you install certain discontinued software that Macs don't support anymore. And iTunes happens to be one of the apps it works with. So yeah, I still use iTunes on my modern up-to-date Mac computers. It works fine without a problem. Always recognizes my iPod. Always recognizes my phone. Transfers perfectly. The podcasts work properly. And it's great. And, it pl- and I use it to play back my music. And it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. Because hard drives eventually die, I know that, hey, the backup hard drives could die, so there are certain things that I also back up to some kind of optical medium, like CDRs or DVDRs or Blu-ray discs. And um, despite what a lot of people say, those media do last a while. I talked before about how I have one CD that I've had since 1989 still plays like a charm. CDRs, the recordable versions, probably don't last as long, but they'll still last you a good time. It's definitely worth having those, as far as I'm concerned. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this episode, it's that you need to make sure that you have backups of anything that, if it were destroyed, it would be the end of the world to you. So please, 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 always, always make backups. Clearly, I am pretty passionate about the whole backing up concept, and I hope you are as well. You don't want to be in that situation in which suddenly your precious data, your precious pictures, documents, sounds, etc. are gone forever. Not a good place to be. If you use the cloud, (laughs) just beware of the possible consequences of anything happening, so you might want to have kind of a backup for your cloud as well. But anyway, let me stop preaching about that and let me preach about something else that uh, I tend to get preachy about. (laughs) And um, of course, that would be the Beatles. Now, lately, a certain compilation album put out under the Beatles name back in the 80s has been getting a lot of undeserved flack. And I am here to defend it. Now, unlike the previous portion of this episode, in which I said there was nothing recent that prompted me to make my pleas, I'm going to have to say that's not the case with this segment. And I have to come to the defense of an album that is in my collection. It is a Beatles album, released in 1982, March 1982, and it's called Real, R-E-E-L, Music. Real because it's a compilation of songs taken from their five films. A Hard Day's Night, Help, Yellow Submarine, and Let It Be, the four full-length motion pictures they did, and Magical Mystery Tour, the hour-long film they did that was aired on the BBC on Boxing Day 1967, and for God knows what reason in black and white, and shown in the cinemas via closed circuit in the United States. Now, this was put together by Capitol Records, and here's the thing. You will not see very many officially released Beatles compilations, and uh, there's a reason for that. It's because the Beatles were under contract with their record label, EMI, for 10 years, starting in 1966. And while they were under contract, they had the right to approve or disapprove any release that was about to come out with their name on it, even after they broke up. The only Beatles compilations you will find from before their contract expired in 1976 were what we call the Red Album and the Blue Album, 
uh, that is, the compilations called 1962 through 1966 and 1967 through 1970, respectively. Those compilations would not have come out were it not for an unauthorized, multi-record compilation sold on TV called Alpha Omega. EMI got wind of it and said, wait a minute, no, only we can release Beatles albums and we can do better than you guys did. Certainly the sound quality was better because, well, the label who did Alpha Omega did not have the actual master tapes, but that's beside the point. Until the Beatles' contract with EMI expired in 1976, those two albums were the only authorized compilations. Once that contract expired, though, ooh, EMI and its subsidiaries went to work on throwing together compilation after compilation, the first one being a double record called Rock and Roll Music in 1976. Their producer, George Martin, actually had a little bit of a hand in that, in that he remixed a lot of the songs, uh, not from the multi-tracks, unfortunately, but from the actual masters. He added some reverb to a couple of songs to make them sound a little bit more exciting. Uh, for God knows what reason, he swapped the stereo channels, so instead of what was on the right was now on the left, and vice versa. I don't know why he would do that. He tried to uh, make the vocals a little bit more centered on songs where the vocals and backing tracks are in separate channels. In 1977, there was the Hollywood Bowl album, which took selections from the three concerts the Beatles did at the Hollywood Bowl in August 1964 and August 1965. Now, those concerts were originally going to be released back in the 60s, but according to the powers that be, they just did not sound good enough for release. There was too much noise, too much screaming, and they just couldn't get a decent recording, so they say. In 1977, they used uh, more modern technology to clean it up a little bit and make it more releasable. Once again, George Martin produced it and uh, put together a pretty worthwhile album, if you ask me. Now, what I don't understand is how they were able to do that, because there was still the rule that EMI was not allowed to release anything that was not already released. Uh, they must have got special permission or something. I don't know. Uh, I will have to research that for my own knowledge. 1977 also saw the release of a compilation called Love Songs. It was a two-record set put together by, I believe, Capitol Records. Over in England, Parlophone eventually got it too. I don't know if it was uh, an export or what, but they did release their own. And I believe their version actually had better sound quality because, well, EMI had the original masters while Capitol had to deal with the masters that they used before for their previous albums instead of the original sources. That album happened to be released when Paul McCartney was probably at the height of his post-Beatles career with Wings. What's really telling is that there's a picture of the four Beatles. The artists at Capitol artificially enlarged the picture of Paul McCartney, undoubtedly to grab people's attention. Hey, this is the guy who's currently riding the hit parade right now. Get this album. Over in England, they also had a compilation called Beatles Ballads, which actually had more love songs than the Love Songs album did. Some of those songs weren't love songs at all. Also in England, they had a couple of box sets. There was the Beatles Collection, which took all of the previous Beatles albums and put them in a box, and it had a bonus album called Rarities. Problem was, there really wasn't much terribly rare about the songs that they included. Maybe one or two had anything interesting on them. And they eventually offered that album as a separate sale as well, so you didn't have to get that whole box set. There was another box called the Beatles Box, which was actually pretty attractive because you weren't just rebuying the same albums over and over, but also because it had some exotic mixes that were released in other countries that you couldn't get in, say, England. So that was actually a pretty attractive prospect, and from what I understand, the quality of the set in both the appearance and the actual vinyl pressing were pretty darn good. Also in 1980, Capitol Records put together its own rarities compilation, which at first proved to be a little bit of a challenge because they were really hoping to get some unreleased songs, but uh, the powers that be said, nope, you're not allowed to use unreleased songs, just recordings that had already been released somewhere in the world. But it actually was a pretty good compilation. It had a lot of things that you could not get in America unless you happened to get, say, the singles back in the 60s and had those rare B-sides you couldn't get anywhere else. 
There was uh, the version of Love Me Do with Ringo Starr on drums, which was never released in the United States up until then. There were a couple of mono mixes from the White Album that uh, you wouldn't have gotten outside of England. It's really an interesting compilation, especially because nowadays a lot of the songs on it you can get on a Beatles CD. The next album, again on Capitol Records, put together by Steve Meyer and Randall Davis, and it's called Real Music. It is a theme album in which all of the songs come from the tie-in albums from the five films that the Beatles did. Now, this album gets a lot of flack. A lot of fans think it's a waste. Recently on the Fab Four Free For All podcast, they referred to how it was a bad idea, and I really don't understand what the problem is. It's a perfectly fine compilation. It's a great sampler. If you say, as I was in 1987, a new Beatles fan. Now, in December 2020, there was an episode of this podcast in which my wife Lisa guested with me, and we talked about how we got into the monkeys. Starting in 1986 through the rest of 1987, in case you don't remember, I was listening to pretty much nothing but the monkeys, and I was getting kind of tired of it. So I decided, I'm going to try the Beatles, because if it weren't for the Beatles, you never would have had the monkeys in the first place, so why the heck not? I went to the public library and grabbed four Beatles albums. Introducing the Beatles, it was a counterfeit copy. <laughs> the early Beatles, which I didn't realize at the time was pretty much the same album as introducing the Beatles. Rock and Roll Music Volume 2. Now, at one point, the Rock and Roll Music 2 record set was split up into two records. And uh, so the one I grabbed at the library was Volume 2. In fact, it was an import copy, interestingly. And Real Music. I think I mentioned this before, but in 1990... In 1990, on WFYR in Chicago, British expat Bob Barnes Watts, B-A-R-N-E-S hyphen W-A-T-T-S, would play a listener's 10 favorite Beatles songs every day at lunchtime, and he called it Bob's Beatles Brunch. If he picked your top 10 list, he would send you 10 Beatles albums. Well, I sent my list in, and a year later, I heard him announce my name, and he played my songs. And a couple of weeks later, the albums arrived. One of them was Real Music. So because of that also, Real Music has a special place in my heart, and I still have that copy. It has a big circle punched out of it in the corner, but I still like it. Now, I'm going to go through the track listing right now of Real Music. 14 songs, which is unusual for an American album, at least it was back then. A Hard Day's Night, I Should Have Known Better, Can't Buy Me Love, And I Love Her, Help, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, Ticket to Ride, Magical Mystery Tour, I Am the Walrus, Yellow Submarine, All You Need Is Love, Let It Be, Get Back, and The Long and Winding Road. Now, I guess if you are a longtime Beatles fan, this probably is a useless compilation pretty much just by face value because, for one thing, every single one of those songs is available on those two double record sets that came out in 1973, the Red and the Blue albums. And so many of these songs, A Hard Day's Night, Can't Buy Me Love, Help, Ticket to Ride, All You Need Is Love, Let It Be, Get Back the Long and Winding Road, those were number one hits. In the Beatles world, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting one of them. But what about 12-year-old Sean in 1987, who was just dipping his toes in the water? This is a hell of a sampler. It was real music that first introduced me to Ticket to Ride, believe it or not. You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which I found really catchy. I loved how John would sing, hey, every chorus. It was my introduction to I Am the Walrus really bizarre lyrics, and I got hooked from the opening notes. I loved I Am the Walrus so much that I wanted to hear the rest of the Magical Mystery Tour album. I had heard that there was a song on it called Strawberry Fields Forever, and I was really looking forward to listening to that one. And I was disappointed that it wasn't on this album. Well, because it wasn't in the film Magical Mystery Tour, so that's why it's not there. But in terms of just an introduction, this is really a great set. And it's also put together really attractively. The front cover is a drawing of a movie theater marquee. And under it, you have a drawing of the Beatles as they were in A Hard Day's Night. You have George Harrison and John Lennon as they were from Help. 
You have a couple of characters from Magical Mystery Tour from the I Am the Walrus scene, uh, John being one of them. I don't know who the other one is. The back cover is basically just an expansion of the front cover. It has uh, the Beatles as they were in the Let It Be movie, the Yellow Submarine cartoon Beatles. Oh, one of the uh, characters is George Harrison in a wizard costume for Magical Mystery Tour. It's a really cool package. It's a really cool cover. Basically looking like the Beatles are arriving for a premiere of a movie. On the shrink wrap, there's a hype sticker. Includes 14 songs from their movie and a special 12-page color souvenir program. And uh, let me tell you about that souvenir program. It's a really cool little booklet. The cover has a drawing of the Beatles in various uh, characters from their movies hanging out inside the lobby of a movie theater right outside the snack bar. And uh, interesting, there's a Coca-Cola product placement in there. Very subtle. Similar to what was done in the rock and roll music release. There are depictions of the posters from their movies. You open up the book, and there are essays on each of the five films, complete with pictures from the films, both from the films themselves and from behind the scenes. Now, the write-ups aren't 100% accurate, I mean, which is okay, because in 1982, people didn't really know as much as they do now about what went on. But it's still a really nice package. It's nicely done. The record label is a custom label drawn up to look like a film reel. And uh, remember how I said that the Love Songs album appeared to attempt to cash in on Paul McCartney's latest fame? Well, a lot of these compilations were cash-ins. For example, rock and roll music, it was to cash in on nostalgia, which was sweeping the country at the time, starting with the movie American Graffiti and continuing on with the TV show Happy Days. And I know what you're going to say. That was 50s nostalgia, not Beatles nostalgia. Well, here's the thing. Number one, Capitol was also trying to make a Beatles equivalent to the Beach Boys Endless Summer compilation, which was just flying off the shelves. That sucker went to number one and stayed on the charts for a very long time, and they were hoping to reproduce the success with the Beatles. And also, if you were to open up the gatefold of the original rock and roll music, you see all kinds of 50s nostalgia things, like diner paraphernalia, like a Coca-Cola glass and a jukebox remote control thingy. You know, those little things that were on the tables. It looked very 50s retro. Well, it turns out that this real music album was meant to cash in as well, because its release intentionally coincided with the cinematic reissue of a remastered A Hard Day's Night. One of the big things about that reissue of A Hard Day's Night was it now had a stereo soundtrack on it. Which might also explain why the front cover, the only occurrence of all four Beatles at the same time, is their A Hard Day's Night characters. <laughs> oh, and while I'm talking about the packaging, the inner sleeve is pretty cool too. It's a bunch of pictures, uh, one side has a bunch of pictures in mock film strips. Uh, some of them are from movies, some of them are not. Like there's a picture of Paul McCartney from 1968 from the David Frost show. There are a couple of Beatles pictures here of them posing with their yellow submarine equivalents. There's a picture of John Lennon inside a piano from the Ticket to Ride scene from Help. There's a pretty interesting variety. And you flip the sleeve over, as I'm doing right now, and um, it's a picture of... Beatles album covers that Capitol Records had the rights to. It was captioned, The Beatles Collection. It's almost as if they're giving you a checklist, trying to encourage you to collect them all here. Interestingly, the soundtrack from A Hard Day's Night is on this sleeve as well, which was a United Artists album. However, Capitol eventually acquired the rights to it. I think it was in 1976. Was real music an obvious cash grab? Well, yeah, it was. It was. But still, does that mean necessarily that it's bad? Well, there are a few things that I don't like about it, I'll be honest with you. For one thing, this wasn't a terribly good idea, I don't think, but at the same time, there was a single released called The Beatles Movie Medley, which was an edit of several songs from Beatles films. It had the same artwork as real music, but that song was not actually included on the album. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially because Capitol Records was always about including singles on albums. It doesn't have the Beatles movie medley or its B-side, I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, which was from the movie A Hard Day's Night. And also, the selections from Let It Be, that is, Get Back, Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road, those songs don't actually appear in the movie as they are on the album. I understand the inclusion of Let It Be, because, well, it's the title of the movie itself. Well, for one thing, they use the Phil Spector version of it with all the horn overdubs, 
The problem is in the movie, there are no horns. They should, if they have to use, let it be, they should use the single version, which actually I think does have horns, but they're very subtle and it's easy to miss. It's much closer to how it would have sounded in the movie where they were just the Beatles themselves and Billy Preston, the long and winding road. Of course, the Phil Spector version, that was the only version I think Capital was allowed to touch, but they didn't have to include that song. I think what they should have done, instead of Get Back in the Long and Winding Road, which had both been previously issued not only on regular Beatles albums, but also Capitol Records compilations, they should have taken, say, I've Got a Feeling and One After 909 from the Let It Be album. Those songs were performed on the Apple rooftop, and the versions that are on the Let It Be album were the ones that were in the movie. Kind of similar to the Let It Be problem, uh, Yellow Submarine, the songs they use from that movie aren't necessarily the most choice songs you could use. I mean, yeah, you gotta include Yellow Submarine because it's the name of the movie, and the problem is that song goes back to 1966 from the Revolver album, but still, all you need is love. Again, that was a number one hit that shows up all the time. It was on the Blue Album. It might have been on Love Songs. I don't remember for sure. They could have used a song that was specifically recorded for the movie, like, say, All Together Now or Hey Bulldog. Well, then again, I don't know if those songs were definitely specifically recorded for the movie, because in 1967, if the Beatles laid down a song and they didn't really like it, they said, yeah, just send it over to the Yellow Submarine people. They can use it in that movie because they didn't really care much for the old submarine project at first. And as I look at the track list, I can also understand that these songs have even more ubiquity than you might realize, because the only two songs on the album that were not released as a single, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away and Magical Mystery Tour. Every other song was on a hit single. But going back to my defense of real music, again, it's a good selection of tunes for new Beatles fans. It's a nicely designed package thoughtful liner notes, and also, there are some things of interest on this album. For one thing, I should have known better in stereo. Now, I remember listening to this album the first time, and my first thought when hearing I should have known better was, I finally know the name of that song that was used in a radio commercial once. I recognize the harmonica riff. Now, here's the thing. Speaking of the harmonica riff, it is well known among diehard Beatles fans that the stereo mix of I Should Have Known Better has a harmonica error. Now, using fair use to review and critique, here is what the beginning of I Should Have Known Better sounds like on the stereo version of the album A Hard Day's Night. Did you notice that that harmonica dropped out? Well, here's what that intro sounds like in mono. Yeah, notice that on the mono version, there's no mistake. Well, the thing about real music is, I believe it is the worldwide debut of this stereo variation of I Should Have Known Better. Here, let's listen to it. Notice that? No harmonica mistake. I think this is the first time you could get a stereo I should have known better without the harmonica mistake. Ticket to Ride, believe it or not, makes its United States debut in stereo on real music. Even on the stereo mix of the U.S. version of the Help album, Ticket to Ride is in fake stereo, duophonic rechanneled from a mono recording. Even on the Red Album in the United States, Ticket to Ride was not in stereo. We had to wait until 1982 to hear that song in stereo. Well, unless the imports section of your favorite record store had any of the British releases, of course. Another oddity here, I Am the Walrus. For the longest time in the United States, I Am the Walrus started with four pairs of eighth notes played by John Lennon on a Mellotron. This version of I Am the Walrus on Real Music has it played six times, which happens to be how all the British versions of I Am the Walrus start. 
part of me also wants to think that this might also be the U.S. stereo debut of the song A Hard Day's Night, but I might be wrong about that. But still, real music has at least the U.S. debuts of several mixes of Beatles songs. But really, thinking about all the positives of real music, again, a great sampler for those who are just dipping their toes into the Beatles' waters. I mean, it covers 1964 and 1965. Technically, 1966, 67, 69, 70. So that's a pretty good sampler of their, practically their entire career, actually. Great design, some unique mixes, at least for the time they were unique, and also 14 songs, which, again, was not common on American albums. Usually, you'd only get 12 or fewer songs. And it seems to me, everybody who complains about the Real Music album has one thing in common. They were already very much into the Beatles before real music came into their lives. I recommend giving it a chance. It's one of the first four Beatles albums I ever heard, and I'm glad I heard it. At some point, I don't know when, but the Beatles and their estates, that is, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and Yoko Ono, John Lennon's estate essentially, were able to gain better control of the material that could come out, which is why when you look at the compilations that have happened since about 1986 or so, they were few and far between. There was Beatles 1, which was just a compilation of their number one hits from their two biggest markets, and that thing sold insanely well. And as a Beatles fan who already had all those songs on CD, I can tell you two reasons why I was glad to get that CD. Number one, they were brand new masters. The Beatles catalog hadn't been remastered since 1987, so it was well overdue for a remaster. And number two, Beatles 1 had a lot of songs that made their CD stereo debut. There was Beatles 1, and then there was another album called Tomorrow Never Knows, which was an iTunes exclusive, and it was a compilation of a bunch of songs that uh, various people in the industry deemed as particularly influential in shaping where popular music was going at any given time. I don't think that was ever released as a physical album. But yeah, those are the only two real compilations. You had, of course, the anthology series and the uh, 50th anniversary reissues in those big boxes. But those were archival releases, really. And Love, which isn't even really a compilation. It's a bunch of remixes and mashups. The problem is a lot of people dismiss the Love album because it's mashups. Well, here's the thing. It's technically a soundtrack album to the Cirque du Soleil Beatles show. Even if you don't like what was done with those mashups, if you actually see that Cirque du Soleil show, it all makes perfect sense. Personally, I love the mashups and I love the show. And in fact, I'm going to be seeing it again in April and I'm really excited about that. You know what else I'm excited about? Getting this episode out to you. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And as I usually do, I thank my wonderful wife, Lisa, for putting up with me hiding out in our third bedroom to record this. And if you're listening to me now after hearing what I did in the previous episode, good Lord, you are a very kind-hearted person. So I thank you. And uh, hey, remember when I was uh, dropping in those little samples over there? Yeah, I do not own those. Uh, they belong to their respective copyright holders. I didn't mean any copyright infringement. They were simply there for review and commentary, as is, uh, I guess, fair use. But I hope that's fair to everybody there. And uh, you can reach out to me on Facebook. Look for Autobiography of a Schnook or go to Facebook.com slash Schnook Podcast. I don't really use it for the podcast as much as I should, but I don't know. I just don't know what to post in the page. So anyway, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram under the handles at Schnook Podcast. And uh, before I go, I do feel it necessary to express my concern and um, my care, my best wishes to the people of Ukraine. I hope everything gets better, and uh, let's just hope the madness stops, okay? And by the way, I'm going to put a link in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com to an article that has a list of different charities you can donate to if you want to help out with that 
terrible situation. Also, my friends, if you listen to this podcast regularly and on schedule as soon as it comes out, you may have noticed um, I did not put one out in February, but Lord knows I tried. I really did. Uh, One problem is that February was just a little tiny bit too short. And another problem is I have a lot on my plate. I'm spreading myself pretty thin with all my projects, my job, just personal time as well. So I'm going to slow down a bit with autobiography of a schnook. I know once a month doesn't seem to be a lot, but I still want to slow down a bit, at least for the time being. So from this point on, there will be a new episode coming out just whenever I get the vibe. I'm going to admit part of it is that I uh, really don't have any material that's not music right now. (laughs) So I want to build up a little bit more material for you. So there you go. But I'll be back ASAP. Whenever that P is, I don't know. But in the meantime, if you're really dying to hear my voice, I will still be co-hosting Pie Factory podcast every month, as well as Tune X podcast. And uh, there's something else that might be coming down the line. I don't know if I can really talk about it right now, but I'm kind of excited about it, especially because it will require almost no work on my part. So anyway, um, I'm going to go now and do other things. And uh, before I do that, I'm going to remind you as usual that the good goes around, especially if you back up your stuff. All the best, my friends. My friends.